This week we're doing a live Q&A episode from the Redwood Forest, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. As always, thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I'm excited because, well, I'm doing something a little different. I'm recording this live out in the field. It's something I've wanted to do for a while. I thought it would be cool to kind of have all the nature sounds, and hopefully you guys will be hearing some birds chirping and the babbling brook over in the background. But I'm recording this in the Redwood National Forest, one of the most beautiful places on Earth. If you've never been here, you have to go at some point in your life. So this week we're going to be doing a live Q&A episode. Well, it's not really live, but I'm recording this live. But uh, I asked the Facebook community for a bunch of questions for this episode, and I'm going to be answering those now. So several people ask the same question, how do I approach scouting new locations? It seems to be something that a lot of people are interested in, and I don't have this down to a science by any means, but usually it starts off on Google Earth or the photographer's ephemeris. I used to like Google Earth a lot more than I do now because there used to be a whole lot of photos that you could click on and get a feel for what people are seeing when they're there on the ground. And there's not as many photos there now, but there's still quite a bit. So I like to start on Google Earth. And usually, you know, there's a reason I'm looking up the location. I, I have a feeling for what might be there. And Google Earth gives me a feeling or gives me a look into that. And then after that, I like to look up the location on either PhotoPills or the Photographer's Ephemeris. The Photographer's Ephemeris is an app that I've been using for a long time where you can kind of see, you know, where the sun is rising, where the sun is setting. It gives you a feel for when you want to be there. And PhotoPills can do a lot of the same stuff. So I usually I start off by looking at those and that's about as much as you can do digitally. At some point you have to actually go there and get on the ground. So if it's somewhere that I haven't been before, the next step is to go there. You can't, um, you can't get away from the need of actually going there and, and walking around. So if it's somewhere I'm really serious about trying to get a good photo, rather than just showing up an hour before sunset and winging it, I like to get there during the day, walk around with no camera, and just kind of get a feel for where I want to be during sunrise or sunset. And I do that during the hours when I'm not rushed. That way, later on when I come and the light's actually good, I have an idea of where I want to go and what I plan on shooting. And it gives you a lot more time to explore, be creative beforehand. And then when you show up later on, that's when you can you know, make the magic happen. So another question that came in on the same subject is, I'd also like to know your thoughts on whether you do or do not share your locations. This is something that is kind of becoming a little bit more of a big deal lately because as photographers, we share a photo and because we shared that photo, hordes of either other photographers or tourists go to these locations that we love so much. The downside to that is that these places get destroyed because they just get so much traffic. There's a lot of photographers that do not share their locations. That way, that location stands a chance of not getting that super high traffic to that location. 
This is something that I haven't always thought a lot about, but it's something that I'm starting to think about more because I notice it in my own area where I share a location and suddenly the next season there's just hordes of photographers. And for one thing, it's not very enjoyable as a photographer to be surrounded by a whole bunch of other photographers, but also these places are getting destroyed. And there's definitely an argument to be made about keeping some of these places a little bit on the down low and let people do their own research. That way the people that work for it are the ones that get to go photograph this place and the people that are just lazy and ask where that particular location is, maybe they don't get to go shoot this place because they didn't do their homework. More and more, I'm just giving general locations. Like when I post a photo, I say the Oregon coast or the Southern Oregon coast or somewhere in central Washington. People that want to figure out where that location is, they have no issues doing that. They can do it fairly easily. But the people that are lazy and don't want to take the time to do that on their own, they're not going to get to shoot that location. So that's how I've been approaching that. Next question is from Rob. He asks, have I tried Luminar yet? And I have not. Well, I tried a very early version of it. I tried the beta version. And I haven't tried the newest version yet. I know there's a lot of people that are really happy about it, and I gave it a try, and I was kind of, eh, it just felt too too focused on presets. It wasn't really doing it for me. I didn't feel like I had as much control as I even do in Lightroom, let alone Photoshop. Guy asks, what countries have you visited in Europe, and what is on your bucket list besides Ireland? So... I haven't ever been to Europe, unfortunately. I, you know, before photography, before photography gave me this vehicle for travel, I did not get to travel very much. I didn't have, it wasn't in the funds. So now that I have a little bit of income and I, I can actually do a little bit of travel, uh, I want to see the world. And Europe is definitely on that list. Going to be going to Ireland, teaching a workshop this year. Scotland, very much on that list. Italy, very much on that list. I'm a huge Roman history nerd, so I really want to get to Italy and, and photograph, you know, some of the amazing ruins over there. Pretty much, that's that's the list. Ireland first, Scotland, and then I want to go into Italy and then travel north from Italy. There's so many amazing spots in Europe. I, I really want to see the Alps. Um, yeah. Jason asks, how to push past times when you go out and get nothing, nothing, whether it's the lack of inspiration, weather, timing, how do you stay inspired even when everything seems against you? I'm on one of those trips right now. Like I, I'm on the third day of a trip and I'm not sure that I've got a photo yet. It's just because the light has not been cooperating and I kind of gambled going to the southern Oregon coast. I drive all the way down here, long drive, and turns out I didn't get light either last night or this morning. So part of it's my fault. I probably could have stayed at home and got better light than I have here. It happens all the time. And the thing is, a day out in nature and shooting is better than a day sitting on your couch any day of the week. I think all of us are landscape photographers because we enjoy the outdoors. I mean, just if you're watching the video right now, just look at where I am. This is beautiful. And the thing is, there's always something to shoot. And you just have to be clever enough and smart enough to figure out what it is. You have to remain flexible with your plans. Right now, for example, I'm dealing with really bluebird, empty skies. 
And for that reason, I'm going to go into the forest and see if I can get some kind of backlit mossy trees or, you know, right now I noticed that there's trillium blooming uh, as I was walking these trails. Super gorgeous. And you just have to be flexible enough to be able to call an audible and figure out what is photogenic on the day. But if I was to go on a trip, which still happens, and get absolutely nothing, you just have to keep in mind that, you know, a day out in nature and a day off of the couch and off of the TV is better than just about anything else, whether you get photos or not. Philip asks, I wanted to know your process to mitigate and eliminate noise in your images. What's your full process to taking the image or images and stacking them to reduce noise or to get extra sharpness? So I actually don't do a whole lot of like, you know, noise reduction image stacking as far as like night photography. There's a method that you can do where you can take a whole bunch of exposures, align them, and then you use that to reduce the noise because because if you align those images and you align those stars up, the only thing that's really changing is the noise. So you can use Photoshop to get rid of that noise. But having said that, I don't really do that. And the reason for that is because I try to get it get those images all in as few frames as possible. Typically I'll do like a, you know, a foreground frame and then I'll do a sky frame. And if I did want to use the image stacking noise reduction technique, the problem with that is that your foregrounds are no longer lined up and then you have to composite that stack of sky exposures in with your foreground image. And if I'm gonna do that, it doesn't really feel like I'm getting it all in one shot or getting it all in three shots. I won't call it cheating, but it does feel like compositing to me. The, the way that I reduce noise is I like to reduce noise selectively, meaning I will dual process like my foreground file, and then I will do one version where I've done very little noise reduction and another version where I've done a whole lot of noise reduction. And then I'll use luminosity mass to put that noise reduced file into my shadows. I'll work that noise reduction into the darkest shadows of the shot where there's not really detail anyways. That way I can maintain those highlights and keep them nice and sharp. There's stuff moving in the bushes. <laughs> the downside to doing this out in the field. But um, yeah, so that's what I do. I basically use luminosity mass to add the noise reduction into the deepest shadows. And I do the same thing with the sky as well. Brian Miller asks, do you use beard oil? And if so, what kind? <laughs> no, I do not. My, my beard is pretty unkempt. I think we can all agree that Nick's beard is not the thickest, most lustrous beard in the world. That's okay. That's okay. David Hunter asks, do you have a pre-visualization process that helps you through post-processing? Not really. I mean, when I'm taking a photo at the time, I kind of... I know in my head why I took the photo. Like, I love the way that the trees were backlit with the sun, or I love the way the light was hitting on my foreground subject. So I generally, for every photo I take, have a reason that I took it, and I have that in my head. And then when I get into post-processing, I try to say, okay, so that's why I took the photo. What is distracting from the reason I took the photo? What is taking away from that? And so at that point, I'll start to fix problems. When you're out in the field and taking a photo, it's very much about what you like about a scene. But when you're post-processing, it becomes very much about what you don't like about a scene and then trying to fix those problems. So that's kind of the way I approach post-processing. I try to figure out what is detracting from the reason I took the photo 
photo and then fix those problems. So Randy asks, what do you consider a good workshop as the host? So for me, uh, what I consider you know, a successful workshop, when I get done with a workshop and I look back on it, I'm like, that was a success. Typically, it's the feeling that everybody's happy for one. I wanna make sure that everybody going home goes home happy. There's stuff moving in the bushes <laughs> again. <laughs> I want to make sure that everybody goes home with new knowledge. Not necessarily just good photos. I want them to go home with good photos as well, but I want them to go home with new knowledge. That way they learned something. <laughs> if I'm doing my job properly, everybody going to this workshop should go home with some new knowledge to incorporate down the road. And hopefully I can make everybody in my group just a little bit better of a photographer. If I feel like everybody learned something, everybody went home with decent photos, and everybody went home happy, that's what I consider a good workshop. And there's some workshops that I don't feel like I nailed that. You know, somebody somebody didn't enjoy themselves, or, you know, I just, I wasn't on my teaching game. There have been workshops where I felt like, you know, everybody was super happy, and, and I was able to teach everybody something. So those that's what makes me feel like uh, workshop went well. Rob asks, how do you achieve the proper exposure when using ND filters? So proper exposure is kind of a loaded term. That, that implies that you are trying to get it all in one exposure. And a lot of times, I even when I'm using ND filters, I, I'm still exposure blending. So a lot of times I'm taking two exposures and then somewhere in between those two, what I end up with with after post-processing is the, prop, the finished exposure. When I'm shooting with ND filters, and I should say right off the bat that uh, I don't do a whole lot of really long exposures, not like two and a half minute long exposures. But when I do do that, when I do 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 that, <laughs> I, I use ND calculators. So there's quite a few of them out. You can download them for your phone where you basically say what your exposure is with no ND filter. Uh, then you enter your ND filter and it tells you exactly how long your shutter speed needs to be when you put that new 10 stop or 15 stop ND filter on and that, that helps you find your, your proper exposure more quickly. But if you're doing exposures under 30 seconds, just use live view. I, I shoot in live view all of the time, anytime I'm on a tripod and you can really quickly find your exposure that way because you just look at it and you're like, oh, that's too bright, oh, that's too dark. And it's not very scientific, but it works really well. Colin asks, what would you be your dream destination for landscape photography trip? It doesn't have to be realistic. So Greenland, Greenland is very much on my list. You know, the amount of icebergs that are just floating around in the ocean, really super jagged mountains. And it's such a new unexplored chunk of land, land mass that is more is being revealed every day. And a lot of it hasn't ever even been explored. The adventurous part of me really wants to go photograph that. The more realistic part of me realizes that I'm probably not able to go photograph that. But I think Greenland is definitely on that list just for the beauty of ice. I'm really drawn to Arctic scenes. I just love how ice in general can just be like photographing a piece of art, a piece of ever-changing, never-going-to-be-the-same art. And I think that's why I like photographing seascapes as well, because it's never going to be the same 
twice and I can I can walk up and photograph a chunk of ice and nobody will ever get to photograph that chunk of ice again once it melts so I think Greenland's definitely on that list Antarctica as well for that same reason. Eric says, I'd be interested in learning how to photograph lightning storms. I've always been interested, but also interested in not dying either. <laughs> so photographing lightning storms is challenging for multiple reasons. First of all, you can die and that's a big downside. You gotta be really careful and really smart about where you are. And even when you are careful and are smart, you're still not safe because lightning is just unpredictable. So just some of the like technical things, photographing lightning before the sun properly goes down is really, really difficult because you're typically dealing with shorter shutter speeds because there's so much ambient light. ND filters can help within reason because if you put on too strong of an ND filter, like let's say a 10 stop so you can get a long shutter speed, the likelihood of catching that strike goes up, but when you do catch that strike, it's going to be very faint and very weak in the frame. It's not going to be very bright compared to the ambient light. So for that reason, before sunset, I like to use maybe a three-stop ND filter. That way I can slow down my shutter speed a little bit and increase my odds of actually catching a strike, but it's still going to be impactful if I do. It's not going to be super faint. After dark, lightning gets way more easy to photograph and to catch because you're dealing with longer shutter speeds. In fact, one of the easiest ways to photograph lightning is just to use a remote trigger and shoot in bulb mode and just hold down your shutter release until you catch a bolt and then let go and then start a new frame. Or you can, you know, kind of time it and you wait for 15 seconds when you think it's more likely to, you know, have a lightning bolt hold down your shutter release and wait till you get one. Um, if you don't want to go that route, if you want to go a little bit more automated, uh, a lot of times what I've done is just use the intervalometer. I will set up the intervalometer to take a photo every, every chance I can. Basically, you just put, hold down the hold button, put your camera into high-speed continuous, and then you just mash it down. And every chance that it gets to take another photo, it's going to. That way you're ending up with the smallest gap possible between frames, and that increases your likelihood to catch one. I've tried lightning triggers and never had a whole lot of success. I do have the lightning trigger, which I haven't had the opportunity to use yet because I haven't been around lightning storms yet since owning it, but intervalometers tend to be the best way to go. As far as settings, uh, you want to make sure that you're stopped down a little bit so, you know, your scene is sharp. So typically I'll be shooting like somewhere between f8, f5.6, something like that. Slightly increased ISO, maybe like ISO 400, and then whatever shutter speed I can get away with. The longer the better increases your odds for a strike. As far as where to stand, that's the hard part. Because there are places where you're just not safe anywhere. If you're, you know, in the Midwest, where everything is flat you become the tallest thing and that's not a good situation to be in I'm kind of lucky in my area because I'm surrounded by hills so if I'm down in a valley theoretically I should be safe theoretically and plus there's lots of wind turbines where they'll strike the wind turbines 
in theory, they shouldn't strike me because a wind turbine's way taller and it's a big metal rod. So they, they kind of function like, what do they call them, lightning rod. If you can get around something to where it's going to strike it rather than you and then get a safe distance from it, but not too close, but not too far away, uh, it minimizes your chances for getting hit. Um, so a lot of times I'll like put my camera out on a tripod, put a rain cover on my camera because it's probably going to rain, and then I'll get back in the car. But you're not even really safe then. It's kind of a myth that you're safe in a car because of the rubber tires. I've seen videos of cars getting struck by lightning and not a good situation. So you're better off just to be in a safe place. My Cope asks, best time for photographing Palouse Falls, sunrise or sunset? It's actually a better sunrise location because you can photograph the sun rising back behind it. Mike asks, when not doing landscapes, what am I shooting? So I still photograph senior portraits, even am shooting a few weddings again this year. I'm slowly transitioning out of a lot of the other types of photography I do. I think two years ago I shot 28 weddings. Last year I shot something like 10. This year I'm probably going to shoot something like four. I'm slowly transitioning out of that because I just don't love it as much as I do landscape photography. And after all, isn't that the goal is to slowly start doing more and more of what you love and less of what you don't love. I enjoy doing portraits. I expect to kind of always do some portraiture and in a way it's a really good thing to have a different type of photography that you do because it, it gives you a way of continuing to do photography and continuing to improve at photography but not get so burnt out on that particular genre. Uh, I love sports photography. Uh, every year I get to shoot at least one NFL game and there is nothing cooler. Uh, photographing the NFL and photographing pro sports is so much fun because it's completely different than landscape photography where it's very reactionary and I'm just trying to keep up with what's going on around me as opposed to landscape photography that you're kind of having to make stuff happen. It's all up to you. But in sports photography, it's just up to you to catch the action. It's nice in that way. So John asks, how to progress and what to do when you don't have a great deal of free time to go out and shoot? I think the biggest thing is to still attempt to immerse yourself. And you can do that even when you're not shooting by all of that time that you would normally be spending on the television or doing meaningless things that are probably just a big time suck. Dedicate that time towards immersing yourself in photography, whether it's, you know, watching tutorials and learning something, learning a post-processing trick, or, you know, just getting inspired by looking at the work of others or watching a Thomas Heaton vlog. There's so many things that you can do to really inspire yourself. And the more you immerse yourself in photography, even when you're not doing it, the more excited you're going to be the next time you go out. So that's, that's what I say is just try to immerse yourself as much as you can and to dedicate as much of that free time towards, you know, the little things that you can do at home. Even if you're not out shooting, you can still, you know, watch a vlog or watch a joy of painting show and get inspired or just, you know, learn something new. There's all kinds of things you can do to stay inspired. And the more inspired you are, the more fun you're going to have and the more excited you're going to be the next time you go out to shoot. So Tina asks, Tina Arnold actually, she's one of the moderators for the Facebook group. Thank you for your hard work. She says, what keeps you motivated and inspired? What keeps me motivated is the fact that I don't feel like my photography is where I want it to be. I'm the type of person that I'm very, I don't know, 
I'm driven. I, I'm driven to improve, and I'm never really satisfied. And for that reason, I'm not the most content photographer in the world, but it keeps me driving forward to, to improve. So that, that keeps me motivated is the fact that I just want to be better. And I enjoy the process of improving and being able to see those baby steps of improvement. That makes me happy. That's where a lot of my happiness comes from is seeing those baby steps towards a goal. But what keeps me inspired is just admiring the work of others, seeing some of the really creative original work. Like right now, with my own photography, my biggest worry and my biggest pet peeve is that when I feel like I'm not being original. I really want to find my own voice and to do something new and original and blaze a new trail. And there's so many good photographers out there that are doing exactly that. And those are the photographers that really motivate me and inspire me and make me want to be like them, you know, and appreciating that and just getting out and and spending a little bit of time in nature not doing photography is something that I f fail at a lot. But when I finally do get out and I just hang out on a trail or I go hiking, God forbid, without my camera on me, I come back so rejuvenated and so refreshed and with such a feeling of nature is worth photographing. And it's not about me. It's about what I'm photographing. And sometimes I guess I get a little bit uh, full of myself and I forget that. So spending time in nature and appreciating the beautiful work of others and striving to be not only better the next time I go out, but striving to be more original the next time I go out. I don't want to be a copycat and I don't want to be somebody that's just going out and doing the same thing that somebody else did, only a little bit better. I don't want to be that person either. I want to figure out what it means to blaze a new trail and figure out what that even feels like. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. And we'll see you in the next episode. Take it easy, guys. Bye-bye.